I'm Jack, and this is my transformation story. I grew up uh, in a Church of England school, uh, and it, it was, we were very much brought up around the Bible. I kind of went to my secondary school then, and after leaving from my secondary school, it kind of it, it wasn't so much a Church of England school, so we kind of like essentially moved away from it a little bit. And then I joined the army. As I moved away from the army, I, I kind of moved away from like church and religion, and not out of any particular reason, just moved away from it. And, life kind of happened and then we somehow landed down here we, we eventually had our children and I think when we had our first child little Alfie I think it started to like whisper more in the back of my more in the back of my mind like we should probably at some point start going back to church and then it kind of went away again a little bit and then little Archie was born and then after little Archie being born I started whispering again in the back of my phone like come on we should really start doing this we had actually a bunch of invitations to come to Brookstone. I was like, oh, very much appreciated. We'll, we'll obviously get there eventually. And maybe we'll get there at Christmas or maybe we'll get there at Easter. And we just never quite managed to get around to it. I was very like anxious. I was like, I can do everything. I can control everything. I didn't need any help. I could do everything on my own. At no one point did I need people helping me. Six months after Archie being born, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I think that that was the, that was the thing that really pushed us over the edge. I met Jeff, Jeff Reeser in, in Brookstone Park and when I first started chatting to Jeff he said to me do you know do you know Jesus do I, I, are, you, are you a believer of God and I was like I think I do at that point I think he's like this is my story and he told me his story and I think that that opened it up for a second to go hey I actually don't have that relationship with God and then I think the first time I ever walked in here was myself and my two boys and I think it was the moment that I walked in here, it was the instantly felt like family, instantly felt like home. Everybody was incredibly friendly. And then it, it kind of just happened. We were, we were during service and it was just like, I've got this, you haven't got to do everything on yourself. All of a sudden it was, we said, we said there's a prayer for salvation and it just, it just felt right. It always felt like somebody was sitting on my chest, my chest and my shoulders. And it, all of a sudden this pressure just been taken off my shoulders and my chest and it, and, it was like, oh, my arm's up in the air. God's surrounded me by all these people and all these wonderful people from all our friends. And genuinely, I think it took for all this to happen for me to be to be open to it. And when, I, when it happened, it, it was like, oh, it was just like instantly just changed. And it was just like mood change. And it was like, God has us under control. I think I just had to have that to happen for me, for everything to essentially calm down and, and be more relaxed and realize I don't have to do everything. God's got everything. And I think it took for Kayla to get cancer and for us to, to all to be like, pause for a second. We can do we can do this and somebody else can take control. It's okay to ask for help from God. You're not, you don't have to do all this on your own. You can ask your community, you can ask your church, you can ask whoever you want, and it's perfectly fine. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I uh, am so encouraged by Jack's story, the transformed story that you heard just a few minutes ago. I, I've just been so encouraged. I've watched that video several times this week, and it's, uh, it's uh, stirred my heart every single time. Not the least of which, by the way, is because of that British brogue. I, I, it's so encouraging, you know? Um, I tell Jack, you know, he could read his grocery list, and it would sound profound. But, uh, but I, I, I'm encouraged uh, by that story for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because in a lot of ways, it involves many of you. I don't, I don't know if you caught this when Jack was, was uh, telling his story, but he said, we received many invitations to Brookstone. 
that there were a number of you who before Jack and Kayla and their boys ever came to our church, you knew them and your kids went to school together and, and you were inviting them to come and be a part of what God is doing here. Uh, they came to Brookstone Park and they played in the park. And you know, Brookstone Park is this amazing park for our community where literally hundreds of people every single week are coming just to kick a soccer ball or walk on a walking trail or, or enjoy the outdoors together. And that's where they came. And some of you invested in that and some of you served down there. And that made a difference. That park was an entryway into the church for them and it made a difference. And then he said that when we came to Brookstone for the very first time, we experienced a genuine welcome. He said it felt like family the very first time. I cannot tell you how important that is. That's a ministry that's available to every single one of you every single week when you come to church. Don't just talk to the people that you know. Talk to the people that you don't know. Because the person that you don't know might be here for the very first time and not only do they not know you, they don't know anybody. And if no one reached out to them and welcomed them, how lonely a place that would be, though they would be surrounded by a lot of people. But that's not what Jack and Kayla experienced. They were welcomed warmly into this church and it made a difference in their lives. I love it because it involves you. I'm also encouraged by Jack's story because it shows the power of having gospel conversations. Did you hear him say that when he came to Brookstone Park that uh, Jeff Reeser had a conversation with him, met him, and asked him about Jesus? He didn't just talk about the weather. He didn't talk about politics. He didn't just talk about the things that don't matter really. He talked about Jesus. And it reveals that when we have a conversation with people, even people we don't know very well or at all, and we talk to them about Jesus, it can be the beginning of a transformation in their lives. I'm so encouraged by the fact that Jeff did that and it makes a difference. I'm also encouraged by Jack's story because his story reveals the goodness of God in the midst of life's difficulties. You heard him say that six months after their second child was born that his wife Kayla was diagnosed with breast cancer. And they're continuing on that journey today. They're in the midst of that journey, but God is using that cancer journey to work good things in their lives. And this is who God is. He takes the, down pla- or the broken places and our, and our low spots in life and he uses them for our good and for his glory. I'm also encouraged by his story because it shows the power of having people who don't know Jesus sitting beside you in church. It shows the power of just inviting somebody to come to church because Jack said it was in a service on a Sunday morning just like this when he was in that service and he was here because he was invited and he heard the gospel again and he was drawn to faith and he put his faith in Jesus and his life was changed. It makes a difference. So my encouragement to you is always don't just come to church but invite somebody to come with you and bring them to church. In fact, I'm standing before you uh, today uh, born again on my way to heaven. My life changed forever because somebody did that simple thing. They just asked me to go to church with them. That was it. And it made such a difference in my life. All of those reasons are reasons that Jack's testimony encourages me. But the, the biggest reason that I'm encouraged by his story is because Jack's story is a model of genuine transformation. It shows us the process and the progress 
of a life that's being transformed by Christ. It began with his moment of conversion when he trusted in Christ. And then some of you will remember that Jack went public with his faith a few months ago when he was baptized. He made a public profession of his faith through baptism here on our platform not too many weeks ago. And then he's going through the process of discipleship. He's being discipled. This guy, I got to tell you, he's a, he's a reader like you can't believe. And he has read, he's only been saved a few months. He's read almost all of the New Testament already, a good part of the, of the Old Testament. He's constantly talking to people and asking questions and wanting to know what to read next because he's hungry as a disciple of Jesus. And now with this testimony, sharing it with you, he's moved now to beginning to serve others. This idea of conversion, profession, uh, discipleship, and serving, this is the process by which lives are transformed. And I have to tell you that this is the case in Jack's life. Last Sunday, if you were here, you'll remember we talked about transformation and what it means to be transformed. Here's the definition we learned. It is a thorough and dramatic change. To be transformed is to have a thorough and dramatic change in form or character. And here's what I want you to know. Jack Kitching has been, is being, and will continue to be thoroughly and dramatically changed in character and inform because he has come into contact with the living Lord, the Lord Jesus. And so welcome into week number three. This is our third week together where we're thinking about this idea of being transformed and we're learning about transformation and we're celebrating the power of the risen Christ to take a life and to change it dramatically, not just to take it to heaven not just to change us in eternity, but to change our lives even now. A couple of weeks ago on Easter when we began, we talked about how Jesus lifted Peter out of despair. Last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus transformed Mary Magdalene from demon possession to being a devoted disciple of Jesus. Now, by the way, let me tell you where we're going in the next few weeks. I've told you what we've talked about over the last two Sundays. Let me tell you what the next few weeks are going to look like, and, and maybe this will help you and whet your appetite just a little bit. This teaching series, God willing, is going to last five more Sundays. And over those five Sundays, we're going to move, beginning next Sunday, off of stories, and we're going to start, start talking about the real practical application. We'll begin by talking about the purpose of our transformation. Why would Jesus even change me? Why is he interested in that? Because the truth is, when I came to faith in Christ, I could have just died and gone on to heaven. I mean, that, that might have been sad for people who loved me here, but it wouldn't have been bad for me at all. I would have been in heaven. So rather than just immediately taking us to heaven or leaving us the way we are until we get to heaven, why is he interested in transforming our lives now? Why does he want to change your life, your family, your values, your priorities? Why does he want to do that? There's a purpose. We'll talk about the purpose of transformation. And, and we're also going to talk about the process of transformation. That is how the Lord transforms us. And there's three ways that he does it. In fact, if you could think of it as a table, like if there were a table right here, and we would call it the table of transformation, and your life or my life is on top of that table, and we're being transformed. Well, there are three legs to that table. There are three legs that hold up 
the process of transformation and make it possible. One is this idea of the agent of transformation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that changes me from who I am into who he wants me to become. The second leg is the leg of the truths of transformation. That's the word of God, that he uses the Bible to change people. And if, I, if, I, if I'm not receiving the scriptures, then I'm not being transformed. The third leg of that table is the people of transformation. That's the community of transformation, how God uses other people in my life to help me be different or to become what he wants me to be. And if you take away any of those three legs, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, or the people of God, then the process of transformation begins to grind down, slow down, and even come to a halt. We're going to talk about each of those three legs or those three parts. And then finally, in the last week of this series, then we're going to talk about uh, the promise of ultimate transformation that we will one day finally be completely and fully changed when we arrive in heaven. You know, 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, now, today, we are the sons of God, and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but here's what we know. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And we're going to talk about that. What will it be like when I finally get to heaven? What will that full transformation look like? So that, that's going to get us all the way through uh, right before Memorial Day weekend, those five Sundays. And I hope you'll be here. Can you come? We started two weeks ago. We got five to go. Can you come to church for eight weeks in a row? If you can, shout amen. amen. Not as many of you said amen as earlier. <laughs> it's like half of you. But I think you can do it, okay? Eight Sundays in a row, and we're going to learn this whole idea of transformation. And by the way, just as a sort of a, a looking really down the road, uh, here's my plan for the summer. Once we get past Memorial Day at the end of May, beginning the first Sunday in June, I'm going to begin a summer-long teaching series, June, July, August, the whole summer. God willing, we're going to study through the book of Galatians together. We're going to call it Freedom. And we're going to talk about those six chapters of Galatians. And so I'm giving you a heads up. You've got time to be reading ahead, okay? So go read the book of Galatians, get familiar with it, and we'll spend some time studying it uh, as uh, as we get into the summer. Today, though, we're talking about the transformation of the person who wrote much, if not most, of the New Testament. We're talking about the transformation of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 9 in a minute, but let me begin with you in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, and I want to read to you something that Paul wrote later in his life to his young apprentice, Timothy. Are you there? 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 9. All right, here we go. Verse 9 says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane people, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, uh, for whoremongers and for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who hath 
enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious or violent, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Let me translate that. This is very true. This is the truth. In fact, would you say those words with me? Say, this is the truth. Let's say it. This is the truth. This is the truth. What is the truth? Verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you believe that's the truth, would you shout amen? Amen. This is the truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul would say, and this is true as well, of whom I am chief. Now, I want to take you back to verse number 11, where he says in verse number 11 that there is some good news from God. He talks about this gospel, this good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he doesn't say it's just okay good news or average good news or everyday run-of-the-mill good news. He says this is glorious good news. It is the glorious gospel or glorious good news from God. Now, I want to say to you that you and I are, are people on the earth. We all know that. There is a God who is established upon his throne in heaven. It's absolutely true. Uh, true. And when we stand upon the earth and we lift our eyes, if we're honest, we could and really rightly should expect nothing but judgment and wrath because we have sinned against him and rebelled against him in his judgment and wrath is what we deserve. So we would look up expecting that judgment and wrath, and yet Paul says, hold on, there is good news from heaven. Not bad news, but good news. And the good news is this glorious gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Christ took our sin, paid for them, and rose from the dead to give us eternal life. He says the law was this bad news that we're condemned because of our sin, but the gospel is the good news. Now, Paul then says, this good news uh, has been committed to me, and I have been charged with communicating that good news to a very select group of people. But who are the people that it's supposed to be communicated to? Well, verse 9 tells us who it's not. This idea of our condemnation under the law and our rescue by the gospel. He says, this news, verse 9, is not made for the righteous people, made for a righteous man. But rather, it has been made, verse 9 and 10, he gives us seven categories of people for whom this news is intended. He says this news is for the lawless and the disobedient, those who disobey the law of God. They're rebellious. They won't submit to God's law. He says in verse number 9, it's for the ungodly sinners, those who do what displeases God. He says it's for the unholy and the profane. It means the godless and the vile ones among us. He then goes on to say it's for murderers. He mentions murderers of mothers, murderers of fathers, and then manslayers, which just means killers. The idea is it's for those who rise up against their parents, those who hate others, and those who actually are murderers as well. 
It's for lawless and disobedient, unholy sin, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane, and for murderers. Well, who else is it for? Verse 10, he says, this gospel is for immoral people. Whoremongers, the King James says. The word means anyone who's engaging in sexual immorality, who's violating God's laws, God's commands uh, for sexual activity. He elaborates then on that a bit and says that includes those who defile themselves with mankind. What's he talking about? That's homosexuality. He says that the gospel is for homosexuals. Uh, And we could expand that even further. The gospel is for homosexuals. The gospel is for the LGBTQ plus community. The gospel is for transgendered community. The gospel is for the immoral, he says. Verse number six, for men stealers. Now, that can mean and really strictly literally means those who engage in the slave trade, but it could also mean those who are holding others in bondage in any way. And then he says in verse number 10, for liars and perjured persons, those who swear falsely. Seven different categories that he mentions. The gospel is for these people. And then I love it. He comes to verse number 10 at the end of the verse. He says, and if I've left anything out, any other kind of sin that violates the law of God and is not in keeping with sound doctrine. He says, this is who the gospel is for. Now listen to me very carefully. You know what's true? All of us qualify. Amen? All of us fit into one or more, and in truth, many of those categories. We are the ones for whom the gospel is intended. And Paul says, I have been given the command of carrying this gospel. In fact, he says in verse number 12, well, thank God. I mean, how amazing is this? Paul's overwhelmed by the grace of God that he would not only save him, but then he would tell him to go tell others how they can be saved. Verse number 12, I thank Christ Jesus who counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, uh, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and violent. He says he put me into the gospel even though he knew my past. And then he comes to verse number 15 where he ends and says, you know what, this is just the truth. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he said, I'm the worst of the worst. Here's what I want to tell you about Paul as we're thinking about his transformation. In verse 15 when he says, I am the chief of sinners. It's not mock humility. It's really not. I mean, he, would have, he, he was saying this authentically, genuinely, that I have been a terrible person. I have done horrible things. And I have sinned grievously against God. And I want you to see why Paul would say that. Let me take you over to Acts chapter number 9 and you'll see a bit of his history. Let's talk about it. Acts chapter 9, you follow along verse number 1. Acts 9 verse 1, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters, letters of authority or warrants, to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, any Jewish believers in Jesus in the synagogue, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, 
And Jesus, whom you are persecuting, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks or the, or the goads. I'm goading you. It's hard for you to resist me. Verse 6, and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what you must do. And, when the, and the men which were journeying with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there for three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And he said to him, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And even here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as you were coming, hath sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received his sight immediately and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul with the disciples in Damascus for certain days. And immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, saying that he was the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for the same purpose that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that Jesus is the very Christ. Now look up here. You want to talk about a transformation. We've just read about one, haven't we? This is a life thoroughly and dramatically changed in, in its character and in its form. We began reading in verse number one where he is breathing out hatred and murder against every person who trusts in Christ. And we ended in verse number 22 where he is now in the synagogue preaching the glories of Christ and telling people that they ought to trust in him. This is a life radically changed and we need to understand it, why it was changed and how it was changed. Now, last week when we were talking about Mary Magdalene, I used a very simple outline for you. We talked about Mary's old life, Mary's conversion, and Mary's new life. And I did that on purpose because I wanted you to be able to apply that same outline to your life. When you think about your transformation story, what was my life like before I met Jesus, my old life? How did I meet Jesus? What was my conversion like? And then how has my life changed? What's my new life like? We're going to use that same simple outline today as we think about Paul's life. So write it down. Let's very simply begin by thinking about Paul's old 
life, Paul's old life. Now, the first thing that you'll notice probably is the very slight difference in the spelling of his name. I've been calling him Paul. You just wrote down the name Paul. But when you read the text, every time that we read of him in chapter number nine, he is referred to as Saul. And so sometimes there's some confusion. Are we talking about Saul and Paul, two different men, or is this the same person? The answer is it's the same person. These are the dual names of the exact same man. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. So whenever you read those two names, don't be confused at all. I do want you to understand, though, that when we think about his life, there are three things that you should note. Jot them down. Number one, Saul was born into an Orthodox Jewish family. Saul was a Jewish man, but he was one of the strictest and most um, strict adherents to Orthodox Judaism that you would ever meet. Let me read you a verse from Philippians 3. You don't have to turn. Philippians 3, verse number 5 says this. Paul, talking about his Jewish heritage, he says in verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and regarding the law, or learning in the law, I am a Pharisee. What Paul is saying in Philippians chapter number three is that from the very earliest days of his life, in fact, from the day that he was eight years old, everything about his life had been oriented around obedience to the Jewish law. He said, I'm of the stock of Israel. That means that his mother was Jewish and his father was Jewish. He wasn't born to a Jewish mother and a Gentile dad. He wasn't born to Gentiles who converted and, and became Jews by proselytizing. No, he was born into a thoroughly Jewish heritage of the stock of Israel. He said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I can trace my lineage all the way to Abraham, it means. There's no question about my Jewish heritage. He said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the faithful tribe of Benjamin, the celebrated tribe of Benjamin. This was where he came from, the good tribe, if you will. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, Israel's first king, King Saul, was a Benjamite as well. And no doubt, uh, this Saul was named after that former Benjamite, the great, or the once great at least, King Saul. And he goes on in that verse to say, not only that, I am a Pharisee. The point is, he was a Jewish man who was very committed, his entire life oriented and committed to keeping the law and walking in obedience to the God of the Bible. Acts chapter 22 tells us that he was born in Tarsus, an important city, but he was raised in Jerusalem, a more important city. And that when he was raised in Jerusalem, he went to school in the most elite religious school, the school of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leading Pharisee in Jerusalem during that time. He was the great sage, the great master teacher. And Paul, or Saul, sat at his feet. Acts 26 tells us that he trained there as a Pharisee and that in fact his father was a Pharisee. And he was a Pharisee as well. I simply want you to understand that the man we're talking about today began his life and lived his life as a very faithful Jewish man, a very religious Jewish man. 
He was proud of his Jewish heritage. And he proudly wore the name Saul of Tarsus. But the second thing that you ought to know about him is that he was also a Roman citizen. And this was unusual, very, very unique. There were not a lot of Jews in Paul days who were also citizens of Rome. Now, there were many Jews who lived under the empire of Rome, but they weren't citizens, they were subjects. Paul was a citizen. And we know that he was a citizen because the Bible tells us this in many places, and somewhere uh, previous to his life, his parents or his grandparents had gone to great experience to purchase citizenship And that meant that when he was born, he was born a Roman citizen. Now, why do you care about that? Because it meant that he had great protection over his life. It meant that he had great liberality to move anywhere that he wanted to go throughout the Roman Empire. He could travel freely and under the guard, under the protection of the Roman military. He was a citizen of Rome. And this is the reason that he was given not just the Jewish name of Saul, but the Roman name of Paul. In fact, you're in Acts 9. Go two pages forward, Acts 13. Look quickly. I want you to see where his name really shifts. It it doesn't change, but he begins to use his Roman name exclusively in Acts chapter number 13. This is several years after his conversion, and he's becoming the, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Roman Empire, And so it would make sense that he would adopt the usage of his Roman name and discard the usage of his Jewish name because he was going throughout the Roman Empire preaching to Gentiles and to Romans. Uh, Look at verse number 9. Acts 13 and verse number 9 says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul. There's There's where you see the biblical confirmation, same name, or two names, same man, But then look at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13. Now when Paul and his company left and continued on their journey, he's called Paul. And interestingly, from Acts 13, verse 13 forward, all the way through the New Testament, you never see him referred to as Saul again, ever. He's always from this point referred to as Paul. He was a Jewish man who was also a Roman citizen. Third thing you need to know about Saul, Paul, is this. It is that Saul was a a man who persecuted the church. Back to Acts chapter number 9. He was a persecutor of the church. In fact, go back one chapter further to Acts chapter number 8. Verse number 1 of chapter 8 says, And Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? The death of Stephen. Acts 7 records the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, whose name was Stephen. He was stoned to death by an angry mob after he preached to them the gospel of Jesus. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, the Pharisee who sanctioned the stoning of martyr was a young, up-and-coming, influential Jewish teacher, Jewish Pharisee named Saul. Did you know that the man that we're talking about today was responsible for the murder of the very first Christian Martyr, Stephen. In fact, keep reading. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judah, or Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Look at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc. He created great harm. 
He made havoc of the church. He entered into every house, hailing men and women, committing them into prison. If you had been, listen carefully, if you had been a follower of Jesus living in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, during the days of Saul of Tarsus, it would have been very likely that in the middle of the night there would have been a knock on your door and Saul of Tarsus with his soldiers would have been standing there and they would have dragged you out and thrown you in prison simply for being a believer in Jesus. This is the man that we're talking about. Chapter number 9 tells us that in fact he was this one who terrorized the church. Chapter 9 verse 1 He extends his reign of terror, not just in Jerusalem, but beyond Jerusalem, 150 miles to Damascus. Verse number one, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He wants to go to Damascus, into the synagogues, find Christians, and drag them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. Chapter 9, verse 13 says that he did much evil to the saints. And chapter 9, verse 21 says that he destroyed Christians' lives. What do we know about this man before he came to Christ? He was an Orthodox Jewish man, very religious, with great influence and protection by the Roman military who hated Christ. And he hated Christians. And he did everything that he could do to destroy the church. And before I move off of that, let me just say a quick word to you about persecution of Christians in the world today. Did you know? That there is as much, or perhaps, and many people would say for certain, more persecution among Christians worldwide today than there has ever been in the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. When we read about it in the New Testament, it shouldn't surprise us. We know that in the Bible, it's just the beginning, and it has continued throughout the history of the church. The church has always endured antagonism and hostility, and even the kind of outright violence and persecution that that we're reading about. Do you know that in places like North Korea today, our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering greatly? In Afghanistan and Myanmar, Nigeria, Libya, Pakistan, India, Turkey, Somalia, many West African and Northern African nations. I could list many more countries where Christians are suffering greatly. In fact, the numbers are these, 300 million of our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering great persecution. While we sit in absolute ease and comfort in our church this morning, all over these countries that I've mentioned and many more, Christians are not allowed to gather. And they endure great persecution. They're not allowed to have copies of the scriptures. They're not allowed to evangelize. They're not allowed to worship publicly. Every day across the world, 14 at least, 14 Christians are murdered simply for believing in Jesus. Over 5,000 martyrs every single year across the world. And where they're not murdered, all over the world, Christians are routinely harassed and detained, arrested, imprisoned. And their crime is being a Christian. Their crime is believing in Jesus. And that's it. I just want to say to you, we, sh- we shouldn't turn a deaf ear to that. We, we shouldn't close our hearts to that. We ought to be aware of it. We ought to pray and help and support in other ways as we're able those who are suffering. And I get it. I know that when I even talk about that, we're like, man, I, whew, 
I'm glad it's not that way here. I'm glad we don't have to endure those kinds of things. You know, it's true. We live in a formerly Christian nation. Uh, we have Judeo-Christian roots and a heritage as a nation. And our Judeo-Christian history in America has largely insulated the church in America from those kinds of persecutions. But you do understand, don't you? If y'all are listening, say amen. You do understand, don't you? The cultural winds in America are shifting. The tide is turning. And should the Lord tarry his return for many more years or decades, I'm convinced that in these United States, we are going to begin to see a purging happening of the church, a purifying, really, of the church. I believe the strong winds of persecution are blowing and that it is going to become more and more so as we stand upon the word of God, as you align your values, as we preach and proclaim the values of the word of God to our culture and we seek to evangelize. I believe in America that harassment and detaining and arrest and imprisonment and even ultimately violence might come. And so I have a really simple question for you. If it does, will you stand? Would you? If there were a Saul of Tarsus patrolling our parking lot today, would you be here? If standing for Jesus, if believing the word, if preaching the gospel meant that you would somehow lose something financially or socially or even physically, would you stand? I pray we would. Because that day certainly might come. Well, this is who Paul was. He was this Jewish man with great influence and all the protection of his Roman citizenship. And he hated Christ. And he hated Christians. Well, then the Bible tells us about his conversion then. That's Paul's old life. Let's think about his conversion. Rome, or Acts chapter 9 is this famous Damascus Road experience. Read it, verse number uh, 3. As he journeyed... He came uh, near to Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, by the way, you'll notice immediately Paul was not on a spiritual journey, was he? He was not seeking truth. He, wasn't, he hadn't been invited to church and he was, he was coming to learn more about the claims of Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth, man. He was going to find some Christians to kill him. He wasn't on the, we tend to think the only people that are ever going to come to faith are the ones that are already on a spiritual journey. Do you know the most likely person to come to salvation might be the person you think is the least likely to come to faith in Jesus? Because this is the way the Lord does it. He comes in verse number three, and this light shines round about him, and Christ, write this down, I'm going to give you a simple sermon outline, Christ intercepted him. He's just going along his way to arrest some more Christians out of the blue. Christ comes and intercepts his life. Man, I can relate to that because that's the way it happened in my life. I, like Saul, I wasn't persecuting Christians, but I was going along my own way, doing my own thing, and out of nowhere, Jesus intercepted my life. Jesus did that, and he, he knocks him off his horse. He's, he's overwhelmed by the light. He falls to the ground, and he heard the voice of Christ. What a happy and glorious day of grace in Saul's life. When Christ will no longer let him continue on his way. Number two, and by the way, it would be a happy and gracious day in your life as well. If Christ will no longer let you continue on your way without him. Number two, conviction seized him. Verse number four, I love this. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what that is? You know what I call that? Conviction. 
Jesus confronts him and says, what are you doing? Listen, those are the people who come to salvation. The ones who experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, you're a sinner and that is a problem. If y'all are listening, shout amen. I'm going to preach in a minute. Now listen to me. The people who go to heaven are not the people who go, you know what, I've got a pretty nice life. I'm doing things really, really well. It's all in all, it's pretty good. Jesus will just be a nice add-on. I'll just add Jesus and then it's gonna really be nice. Those aren't the people who get saved. The people who get saved are the sinners. The people who understand what sin is. I'm a broken mess without Christ and if he doesn't save me, I'll be lost forever. Those are the people who come to faith in Jesus. Saul, what are you doing? Listen to his response. Man, he has this crisis moment, which is what conversion is. It is a crisis moment which leads to our conversion. Look at it, verse number five. He says, who are you, Lord? You're the Lord, obviously. I I can't see. I'm knocked off my horse. I hear a voice, but I see no man. You're the Lord. You're the master. You're the ruler. But who are you? Can you imagine the sinking feeling in his heart when he heard the answer? I am Jesus. And you've been fighting against me. And you know what that created for Saul? This moment, this crisis, where he had to admit that everything about how he'd been living and everything about his training and everything about the direction of his life and everything he'd been doing to the church and to Christians, it was all wrong. And he had to stop and turn and convert. The Bible calls it repentance. Where I believe what God says is right, what I've been doing is wrong, and I turn from it, and I repent. Saul knew his entire life had been wrong, and he repents in verse number six. He converts when he says, what would you have me to do? There's Paul's old life, an Orthodox Jewish man, very committed to Judaism, Protected with all the privileges of his Roman citizenship, hating the church, doing all he can to destroy it, and he meets Jesus on this road. And that leads to Paul's new life. Write it down. It's the simple outline, but Paul's new life. You see this in chapter 9, beginning in verse number 15, where God says to Ananias, I want you to go and pray over this guy named Saul of Tarsus. By the way, I don't have time to get into it, but I think it's comical response with Ananias, like, "Uh, um, Lord... (laughs) Are you sure? He's a a Christian killer. It's not a good idea. And God says, go. He is my chosen vessel. He's going to preach the gospel before kings and before the Gentiles and before the nation of Israel. Do you know what? Verse number 20 and 22, he does it. He preaches the gospel in the synagogues of Damascus. But he didn't just preach the gospel in the synagogues of Damascus. He went on to preach the gospel. Are you listening? Throughout the cities of the Roman Empire. He preached it in the cities. He preached it in the synagogues in those cities. He preached it in the Roman amphitheaters in those cities. He preached it in the Cardo, the main streets, the marketplaces of those cities. He preached it in the schools of philosophy in places like Athens. He preached the gospel. And he wrote most of the New Testament. And he carried the gospel from Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome to Spain. Because God took A vile, proud, vicious persecutor of his people and he intercepted his life and he changed it forever. Praise God for grace. 
In fact, I believe, I really believe this, that if it had been written, Paul would have been singing louder than anybody that old hymn, Amazing Grace. Don't you think so? Man, he'd have been throwing back that head and singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a... This is a true saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save wretches, sinners, of whom I am chief. Saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In fact, I have to tell you that thinking about Paul's story this week reminded me of the story of John Newton, who was the author of that hymn, Amazing Grace. You may know the story already. John Newton was born in 1725. When he was 11 years old, just 11, he was taken to sea by his father, who was a seafarer, a sea captain, and he took his 11-year-old son onto the ships with him. The story is told that his father was a vile and a hard and a harsh man as a captain and as a father. And, and John Newton grew up very hard on those ships. His mother, on the other hand, was a praying woman. She died when John Newton was only 17 years old. But for every one of those 17 years, every day of those 17 years, she prayed for him. When he was still at home, she taught him the Bible. And she prayed that God would raise him up to be a minister of the gospel. Well, he went to sea with his father. He became this vile and drunken, carousing man. And every port of call that you could imagine, he was partying and carousing and drinking. He was a drunk. He finally became a sea captain himself. And he served in the slave business, invested in the slave business, captained on slave trading ships up and down the west coast of Africa, between Africa and Europe. But remember, he had a praying mother who until the day she died, she prayed for him. One day, John Newton was on his ship filled with slaves and a storm came and the ship was going down. There was no way they were going to survive. And God worked what John Newton called a miracle and preserved that ship and kept it afloat. And he lived. And on that day, he became a believer in Jesus. And he ultimately left the, the, the ships and, the, and being a captain, and he became a pastor. And if you were to go today to the St. Peter and Paul Anglican Church in Olney, Buckinghamshire, England. Olney, Buckinghamshire in England. You would be at the church that he pastored until he died. And if you were to go out into the yard of that of that church, there's a stone wall that surrounds it. And, and back in the corner, near that stone wall, you would find the grave and the gravestone of John Newton. And the epitaph on that gravestone, written by Newton himself before he died, says this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. It sounds to me like another man named Saul who became Paul. 
It's Paul's story. It's John Newton's story. It's my story. It's Jack's story. And it can be your story as well.